So we are now coming down the home stretch of a series that we've entitled Becoming Who You Are, our journey through a New Testament letter called Ephesians. And we're going to look at something that in our Western culture, I think may meet some resistance that comes from this idea that maybe goes something like this. Haven't we kind of outgrown that a little bit? Don't we know a little bit more than they did 2,000 years ago? Is this really a thing or should we just recognize that the reason that things happen in this world is very observable and we can figure out even why bad things happen in this world. Today, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. And we've entitled this Winning the Invisible War. And in this Western world, this idea either um, is presented as a joke or maybe as something that is just outdated. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the amazing Gary Larson who did the Far Side cartoons um, a while ago. Here is probably one of my favorites. Um, this is titled Nerds in Hell. And one nerd says to the other, hot enough for you? And we got, you know, the devil is in that picture and we kind of think, yeah, haha, that's really funny. And we've kind of, you know, grown beyond this whole idea. And there's even a mindset that would go something like this, that we can really understand the reasons why things happen. There's a natural cause for everything that happens in this world. I mean, if we could just educate people more, or if we could solve the psychological struggles that people have, cause them to just be raised or to live in the right frame of mind, all would be well. And that line of thinking has been a couple hundred years in the making. And then along came the 1900s, which was the bloodiest century this world has ever seen with more genocide and more slavery than this world has ever known. And there's something there that as we talk about this idea, it's easy to just kind of write it off in our context, but in a lot of other places around the world, this is a very real issue, and it helps many people to understand the reality of the world as we know it. Why are things the way that they are? And I'm talking about in us as well as in the bigger picture. So with that in mind, let's jump into what the Apostle Paul says about this dynamic called spiritual warfare. Let's read through this and then we're going to unpack it kind of here section by section. Finally, so he's turning the final corner, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Isn't that just a word, you know, that we kind of throw into a realm because we don't understand it, but now we understand it a little bit better? The Bible has no problem saying, no, there's evil, and it's real against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So in a place where we could write this off as a joke or say, hey, there's a natural you know, cause for everything that happens, the Apostle Paul says, you know, there might be natural causes. 
And there are times when even followers of Jesus have written things off and just kind of thrown them into a spiritual realm. There was a time when, you know, plagues and, and illnesses were all attributed completely to the spiritual realm. And we do know more about those kind of things. But Paul's saying, let's not go completely in the other direction and factor it in because it is spiritual dynamics are just as real as natural things. And this is something that even, you know, many intellectuals in the Western world are beginning to, you know, advocate that we not write off the reality of evil and just call it a word and a made-up word because we don't understand. One example of that is a man named Andrew Del Blanco, and he wrote a book called The Death of Satan. He identifies himself as a secular liberal person, so this is not a follower of Jesus and not a pastor. He's somebody looking at the Western world, the Western culture in which we live, and says to remove the idea of evil is not helping us. Here's what he writes. This is his opening statement. A gulf has opened in the Western world between the visibility of evil and the intellectual abilities to deal with it. We don't like to use words like evil because it, it implies moral judgments. So we use medical terms, dysfunction, and things like that. But as time continued, it was hard not to use the word evil. And to illustrate what he's talking about, he turns to a book, a very popular book that was turned into a very popular movie called The Silence of the Lambs. And I don't know if any of you remember that movie. And he quotes this out of the book. Officer Starling, this young FBI agent, comes in and meets for the first time the notorious serial killer Hannibal Lecter. And when she sees him and she hears what he has done, terrible things, she says, what happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him to make him so cruel? And he hears her, which is a big mistake. And he says to her, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say I'm evil? And Andrew Del Blanco answers that. He says, the modern Western world cannot answer the monster's question. Right? Why is it that some of the things happen in this world? So based on what the Apostle Paul says, I want to look at three things together with you. Who are we fighting in spiritual battles? What are we fighting? And then how do we fight? So let's jump into that. There's a lot here and it's kind of dense, so let's jump into it. So who are we fighting? Here are the words that the Apostle Paul uses. He talks about the devil, talks about rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, and kind of layers these on top of each other. And he doesn't give us a lot of specifics, but he says that there is reality. So when we think about evil, there are complexities that come along with it to try to explain why do things like, as we heard in Sabrina's story, evil, like somebody molesting one of their relatives, where does that come from? But the Bible has no problem helping us to understand where that comes from. The Bible says the reality of evil is present because of two races who have exercised their moral freedom and defied God. Well, what are those two races? 
We are one of them, humanity. The other is angels. And angels are not our deceased loved ones. Angels are created beings that were intended to serve God and to honor God. But the Bible communicates to us that about a third of those angels fell away from God. Their leader, the devil. And so that there are dynamics in the spiritual realm that are just as real as a God that we believe in who is spirit, that there are spiritual forces that are adversarial to God. What God is seeking to do, they are seeking to undo. And Paul uses this phrase, in the heavenly places, and that is Paul's way of communicating in the spiritual realm, in a spiritual dynamic. It's the sixth time in this letter he has used the phrase, in the heavenly realm. Who lives in the heavenly realm? He says, God does. And so if we believe in God, it really isn't a stretch to believe that there is an adversary of God. He talks about all the things that we have in a relationship with God. Where are they kept? Where are they secure? In the heavenly places. So we believe in all of that. We would do well to believe that there is a spiritual reality that exists also. Now, along with this idea, there are two errors to avoid, and they are inferred, implied in what Paul has written. So let me see if I can make this, you know, as simple as possible. One error is to underestimate the issue, right? He talked about wrestling. This is hand-to-hand, close sort of combat. It is like a life-and-death sort of struggle. It's one thing, you know, to dodge the errors that are coming in, but the picture there is of us being in a desperate, hand-to-hand sort of combat. He also layers those names, right? The devil and rulers and authorities and all of that. That is a way, a written way of communicating the importance of this and the value of this and not taking this lightly. But as you may guess, the other error is to overestimate the issue. And what does he say at the beginning of his passage? Then be strong in the Lord. Don't be afraid. Have a measure of confidence. Because maybe you and I don't have enough, and if we do not factor this reality into our day-to-day sort of battles, we will not have the resources to overcome it, but it is in God. And he says, and then after you've done everything, to stand. And when he says that, that's a military word that is used for holding your position, holding your ground. So you're under attack, but you're not retreating. You are standing strong and you are maintaining your position. So don't underestimate it. It's very real. But don't overestimate it because there is a way to win spiritual battles. So with that in mind, we know who we're fighting. What are we fighting? Paul uses this phrase, the schemes of the devil. And what is a scheme? Um, A scheme literally has the idea of a strategy. So there's some intellect, there is some personalization of this. And when we think about that, we may wonder, well, okay, what is a scheme? What is a strategy? If that's true, what are the strategies of the devil? And let me identify two for you. Lies and accusations. Now, I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember a movie, I'm going to date myself a little bit, called The Exorcist, right? That's about something called the paranormal. And there's one part where a girl's head spins all the way around and then she vomits green pea soup, right? And Ivan had a bowl of 
green pea soup ever since that time. And those things are so obvious and they're so over the top and they're so visible. But what does this imply? It's more subtle, isn't it? And here's where we get that. Because the name the devil actually means to lie and to accuse. And so here's a video of the inside of a piano. And John White is a Christian counselor who years ago wrote a book. He said, you want to understand the dynamics that are involved in what happens in spiritual battles, like opening the top of a piano and singing a note into it. And when you do, one of the strings inside of that piano will vibrate, the one that is in tune with what you have sung. I don't know about you, I tend to sing in the key of J sharp, um, which is not great. But whatever you sing into that piano, it is going to vibrate because it is in sync with that. And he used that picture to say that with lies and accusations, there are strings inside the human heart that those strategies can seek to vibrate. So do you know what your strings are? Because what might vibrate for you is not necessarily what vibrates for me. The name the devil literally means a liar, an accuser. Somebody said the devil doesn't leave fang marks in your flesh, he leaves lies in your heart. And the way in which those lies and accusations work, that lies lead to temptation and over-evaluation of my ability to handle things, and accusations lead to condemnation and just the crushing weight of some of the dark reality of myself. And so what are we to do in that? Temptation hides the holiness of God, because in moments of temptation, we might say some things like this. We go, well, it's not that big a deal, and kind of everybody's doing it. And meanwhile, the holiness of God is out of view altogether. And on the other side of the equation with accusations, the love of God is hidden. That we come face to face with our brokenness, and we say, well, God could never love me, or I am off limits to the love of God. So do you know what strings a strategy might target in your life, in your heart? What that might be for you may be very different than me. There was a Puritan pastor back in the 1600s who wrote a book called Precious Remedies for Satan's Strategies or Satan's Devices. You can download it for free as a PDF. And he writes some ways in which both on the temptation side and the condemnation side, the accusation side, this might work. Let me just share a couple. He's got like 80 of them. I'm just going to give you a few. He says on the temptation side, um, the way it can work is that God's adversary will show you the bait but hide the hook. There's a short-term pleasure, but he hides the long-term misery. And I think we know how that one works. I think we're all familiar with that one. We can rationalize sin as a virtue. I'm not a gossip. I'm sharing prayer information with other people. <laughs> Apparently you know that one. Um, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm social. I need to fit in. He shows um, sins of Christian leaders. And the idea is, well, they're doing it. Might as well do it myself. 
overstressing the mercy of God. God will forgive me. Giving in to temptation, not that big a deal. I mean, it's in, jobs, in God's job description, right, to forgive. So what's the big deal? The holiness is hidden. Make people bitter over their suffering. And it's been a hard road. Therefore, I deserve this. Why is it that so many people in prominent positions wind up throwing their careers away for moral kind of issues, things like affairs? Many times the dynamics around it go something like this. Nobody knows how hard this is. Nobody knows how hard I work. I deserve this. Showing um, followers of Jesus how many bad people are having great lives. Why do you want to stay true to God? People who don't honor God are doing great. It's okay. Don't continue to follow. And to compare one part of your life with another part of your life. What does that mean? I think classic example, and remember I'm originally from the East Coast, a mafia hitman might be a good example of this. Yeah, I kill people, but I love my mother. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a good guy, but I kill people, but I love my mother. And so we look at that and we go, well, the one side's okay because of the other side. So that's kind of some of the ways in which those strings get plucked on the temptation side. And then there's also the accusation side. And here's my guess for every single person in this room right now is that in one way or another, we're going to be more susceptible to one side of this or another. And I'll tell you this about myself. I believe I am more susceptible to accusations of the condemnation that comes along with understanding a little bit of the reality about myself. And I recognize there's a part I don't even understand. And many times people say, I struggle with where God is when things are hard and all of that. I'll be honest, I don't struggle with that. You know, I struggle with me and the things that I've said and the things that I've done. And as I relive some things that I wish I could completely undo, it can be a crushing, crushing weight. Richard Baxter says this on the accusation side. One of those strings that can be plucked is causing us to look more at our sin than our Savior. Guilty as charged. Causing people to obsess over their past sins and the impact. That can never be undone. You can never undo that. You can never unsay that. Um, we can have trouble. Um, whatever trouble we encounter in our life can be viewed as a punishment from God. God does not like me. God hates me. God is after me. God is trying to um, punish me for the things that I have done. And inner struggles cannot belong to people who are followers of Jesus. Nobody who loves God would think these things or feel this way. Therefore, I'm condemned. The devil is a liar and an, and a, an accuser. Do you know what strings are likely to be played in your life? So with that in mind, who we fight and what we fight, how do we fight? How do we win that battle? Here's what the Apostle Paul says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. And we actually talked about this before today that we could take all of the spiritual armor that's talked about and we could you know, address it all at one time or we can slow down and do one at a time. And we've chosen to slow down and take them one at a time. For the next number of weeks, you're gonna get one of these pieces of armor because we think it is that important. 
And so Paul, when you say, having fastened on the belt of truth, what does that mean and how does that help us? And what's interesting about the truth is, Paul, aren't you writing to people who already love Jesus and they already have the truth? They put their hope and trust in the truth. Some of the other pieces of armor, the helmet of salvation, don't they already have that? And the shield of faith, don't they already have faith in Jesus? Why would you write those kind of things to put on the armor when you've already said there are things that are true of them in a relationship with God, and they're true because God has accomplished that? It's because what Paul is doing here is what he's done a number of times in this letter, that he wants people to take what is objectively true, what is really true because of God's work, and to make it personally true in their life. That it wouldn't just be something that we know, but as we live out our lives day to day, it would become the response that we have, not just something that we know is true. That we would take what is objectively true of you in Christ and subjectively make that true in your life. That there would be new reactions, new instincts, new ways to think, new ways to feel, new ways to talk. Let me give you one example from the life of Jesus with his disciples. They've been with him for a while and they get into a boat one day and they head out into the middle of the lake and while they're on the boat, a storm comes up and what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping in the boat. And they are freaking out because they think they are going to die. So they wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care that we're about to perish? The old King James says, carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus rebukes the storm and then he turns to them and he rebukes them. And he asks them a question. And the question goes like this, where is your faith? And this is not a question of, hey, you really need to grow your faith more. This is a question that really is asking them to consider this. In light of all that you've seen with me and all that you've heard from me and all that you've experienced together with me, do you really think that I don't care? So take what you know is true and now apply it in a real life moment. And that's the kind of idea the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says, put on the armor of God and take the things that you may know are true of you because you've read them and what the love of God has done, but now make it real in your life. Nerd out a little bit on the grammar here, the verb tense that Paul uses here is a single past action that is complete. Having fastened the belt of truth, he's saying, that happened in the past. What is the best way to prepare for spiritual battles? It's not in the middle of the battle. The arrows are flying all of a sudden, oh, where did I put that belt? And where is that shield? I can't find my shield right now. He's talking about preparing for the battle before the battle and that we would be ready before the arrows fly. And in the picture of what that is, the belt of truth, he's leaning into an image from a Roman soldier in Paul's day, 
And the belt was a foundational piece to all the other pieces of armor that a Roman soldier would put on. We think a belt and we think of something pretty small that holds up our pants. Maybe on an airplane we think of a seat belt. But let me tell you what image the people back then knew looked more like this. That's the belt that a Roman soldier would wear over the tunic, but then under all the other pieces of armor that went on. And all the pieces of armor that were attached to a soldier's torso were in one way or another connected to the belt. It held all the other pieces together. The belt of truth is a foundational piece. So what is it? What is the belt of truth? One day, Jesus said these words, I am the truth and the life and the way. He is the truth. And the belt of truth is everything that belongs to Jesus and comes along with him. And at its heart and soul, that's the gospel. It's the good news. And the good news actually begins with bad news. And think about how this really undoes the temptation moments where I want to overthink or maybe you know, just not think about the holiness of God. And then on the other side, you know, if I want to get really down and feel condemned about myself, the gospel aims at both sides of those mistakes. But here's the bad news. In and of myself, I am hopelessly lost. Paul said, I'm dead in my sins. And the truth about me is worse than I ever feared. And... In Christ, in Jesus, I am infinitely loved and secure because of the power and the grace of God. And so on the day when I face temptation, could it be that the gospel has the opportunity to speak to me in ways that I just will not win the battle just facing temptation? Jesus left heaven and stood in my place, was ripped limb from limb to pay for the very thing that I'm thinking about. Why would I ever do that? But if I'm crushed by the weight of my failure, the gospel says I am infinitely loved. And the outcome is in God's hands. And I will win because he wins. And so the condemnation can be removed as well. And so no matter which side of that equation we are tempted to fall, the gospel, the good news, helps us to win that spiritual battle. And it is the foundational piece for all the other pieces of armor that are application. So what are we saying? Spiritual battles are bad news. They're hard. They explain a lot of what we face day in and day out. Preach the good news to yourself. And I want to give you a little bit of an assignment this coming week. What if every day people like us preach the good news to ourselves? Today, on my own, I'm lost and I am without hope. 
I'm worse than I ever dared to, to even dream. And in Christ, I am infinitely loved. What kind of difference would we experience in the day-to-day things that happen in our marriages, in our families, in our jobs, in our relationships, if the good news was put on like a foundational piece of armor to fight the real battles. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads together with me as I pray. And just before I do, could it be that you've never taken that step of faith and trust to say, God, I want to step into that relationship with you. And I believe it's your doing from beginning to end that you came to my rescue. And on my own, I'm spiritually dead. But you have the power to make me alive. So God, I ask you to forgive me and make me a part of your family and help me to walk with you each and every day. And God, thank you for sharing with us some of the reality that we are not able to see with these human eyes of ours. And God, I pray that as we live out life, we would recognize that there are things that are the result of flesh and blood decisions. There are also things that we need to factor in from a spiritual dynamic. And in all of it, God, may we look to you. May we stand strong in you. And may it draw us closer to you all the more. Thank you for your love and your grace to us on this day and every day. And God, may we never take for granted who you are and all that you offer to us in a relationship with you. God, we just declare our dependence upon you for all of our life. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.